Good evening, my friends, and welcome to 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens, that's me, where I will be your host for two horror movies every night through the month of October. Come join me, won't you? The October Halloween season has always been my favorite time of year, which will come as no surprise for the folks who know me well. But I feel like for at least the past decade or so, I've never really gotten to celebrate the Halloween season the way I want to, because I've been so busy. But due to how the world is right now, we all have a lot more time than we used to. And so, I've decided that I'm going to spend this month of October watching my favorite scary movies of all time, and I hope that you all will watch them along with me. I've always been really enamored of the idea of the horror host, that person who introduces a scary movie for you to give you context and get you excited for what you're about to see. I grew up with Elvira and especially watching Joe Bob Briggs on Monster Vision every Saturday night on TNT back in my high school years in the late 90s and early 2000s. If you want to learn more about horror hosts in the United States, and I highly recommend you do, there is an excellent documentary called American Scary, which details the entire history of horror hosts from Vampira, who was the very first, up until the present day. American Scary is available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. It's one of my favorite documentaries of all time, and I highly recommend that you watch it. See, I'm cheating already. Because when I decided that I wanted to host my favorite horror movies every night in October, I quickly decided to make a list of the 31 movies that would occupy that time. After about five minutes, I realized that for me, picking 31 horror movies was impossible. I love too many of them. So, I have decided that I will do a double feature every night for you, making this 62 of my favorite horror movies. I will say that I will sometimes cheat and introduce another movie like I just did with American Scary when I feel that it is relevant. The way I've decided to structure this month of scary movies is that the first movie 
every night will be presented in order of their release. So, for instance, we are starting with a movie that was released in 1922 and will continue up to the present day. However, the second movie of the night will usually be a film that is made later than the first, but that won't always be true, but most of the time. But the second film is chosen because I feel it is related in some way to the first one. Now, as we go along, I do think it's important to divulge a little bit about my taste in scary movies. Notice I'm saying these are my favorite scary movies. I'm not saying this is a list of the 62 best horror movies ever made. Some of them will be on the objective list of the best horror movies ever made, but a lot of them are movies that I just love and that I always watch during the Halloween season and bring me joy, and we all need a little bit of that. And Halloween is a time that should be celebrated. I will say up front... I have a special love for haunted house ghost movies, also anthology movies, also known as portmanteau movies, where there are multiple creepy stories, usually with a twist at the end, that are uh, presented together within a larger frame story to tie them all together. I also am a sucker for a fun, stupid, inventive 80s slasher movie. So, uh, with those personal prejudices in mind, here we go. I've decided that for our first night of 62 horror movies on October 1st, we are going to have Nosferatu night. The first movie that we are going to watch together is Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, which is a 1922 silent film that is very much within that German expressionism realm of things. It's not as extreme as The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That's what most people think of when they think of German expressionist movies. Um... But it's got some of those touches in it. Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, is directed by F.W. Murnau. And before I talk about the movie itself, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this movie came to be made. Because it really is a miracle that we have Nosferatu at all, that it still exists for us to watch. And I'll get into why that is in just a moment. So, Nosferatu begins, of course, with Bram Stoker publishing his novel Dracula in 1897. Now, in Germany, a production company was formed named Prana Films. And one of the two men who was involved in creating Prana Films was a man by the name of Albin Grau. And Albin Grau was very into the occult. 
and he formed Prana Films with the specific intention of making movies that were based mm -hmm. in the supernatural, which was somewhat w rare at the time. So it's really fascinating and kind of heartbreaking to think about mm -hmm. what might have been had Prana Films made more than one movie, Nosferatu. It really could have become Universal Studios making all these great monster horror movies ten years before. But they decided to, for their first movie, to adapt the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. Now, they did not have the copy, the right to do Dracula. Uh, it was still under copyright. Uh, they chose not to try and get the rights, but write a script that was clearly based on Dracula, but hopefully changed enough of the material for them to get away with it without a lawsuit. One of the first things they did when they wrote the script for Nosferatu is they transferred the story from, you know, Victorian England in, of Stoker's time to Germany several about 60 years earlier. Nosferatu takes place in the 1830s in the German town of Wiesborg. And I think that's a really interesting choice uh, because... That automatically, for especially the German people making this film and for the German audience watching it, it makes it a much more personal experience because it's happening in their own backyard. You know, if this had been a German movie that was set in England, then, oh, it's safe. The, the vampire threat, the threat of the other, is over there. But... Prana Films did not do that. They decided to transplant the story to Germany itself, making it much more real, albeit setting it um, a little over a hundred years before the film was made. One of the interesting things that makes its way into the movie is Alban Grau's occult leanings, Alban Grau was very involved in the making of Nosferatu, and he designed most of the sets and the props. So you do get those elements of German expressionism where things are just a little bit off. Like when um, Hutter, the uh, Jonathan Harker character, uh, yeah, they renamed all the characters from the Dracula names um, to make because that makes it okay. Um, but anyway, uh, Hutter, the Jonathan Harker character, when he travels to the inn near the beginning of the movie on his way to visit Count Orlok's castle in Transylvania, uh, the room that he's staying in has a bed that is on legs that are ridiculously high up, so much so that there's a little wooden ramp next to the bed that you have to walk up to actually get to the mattress itself. And in his room, there is a um, picture of the Virgin Mary that is hung at such an extreme angle that it's basically looking down on you while you sleep. 
And when you get to Count Orlok's castle in Transylvania, you have these chairs that are with the backs that are like, must be six feet tall. Um, and little things like the, the shape of the wine glasses on Count Orlok's table and uh, the skeleton clock, which is clearly handmade for the movie. All these little touches and uh, the contracts that Count Orlok exchanges with Nock, who is Hutter's boss, kind of the Renfield character in this movie. All those contracts that Count Orlok receives and gives are not written in German or any recognizable language. The contracts are actually written with real, legit, occult symbols and ancient languages like uh, Enochian. Um, so, Albin Growl really was very intentional in bringing this supernatural occultist point of view into the film itself in a way that we can still see today. And the fact that the aesthetic of the film is so stunning and strange and haunting is really due to his work. So they chose for their director for Nosferatu, F.W. Murnau, uh, which is short for Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. And he honestly, I think, belongs, even for this one movie alone, in the pantheon of the really great horror directors. Um, F.W. Murnau directed 21 movies in his career. Only 12 of them still survive today, sadly. Uh, he's most Remembered today, of course, for Nosferatu, but he also made a film in 1927 called Sunrise, and that movie, Sunrise, actually shared the very first Best Picture award um, at the Oscars in 1929. So, F.W. Murnau, I am happy to say, at least got award recognition for his artistry. As we go on through this series through October, there will be a running list of people who have been screwed out of an Academy Award because they were in a horror movie, but F.W. Murnau is not one of them. I also think it's really important to mention that F.W. Murnau was gay, and that is a fact that is never really rarely talked about when anyone mentions Nosferatu or him, but he was a gay artist, and I really think that his homosexuality is a integral part of who he was and the work that he made, and I think you can see it in Nosferatu, that it is so much about the threat of the other coming into a normal community, and the even in the title, in the dialogue cards, when Count Orlock is with Hutter, the Jonathan Harker character, for the first time, he says, come sit with me, my lovely man. And unlike virtually any other adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, in this moment, in the first night, Count Orlock actually feeds on Hutter, actually bites his neck and sucks his blood. And 
does so several times. And uh, I don't want to quite spoil the end, but the thing that kills Count Orlok is when he is sucking the blood of a woman for the first time that we see in the film anyway. Um, I don't want to read too much into that, but I, I feel like that's an interesting thing to think about as you watch this movie. So this was a movie that was done on an extremely low budget. Um, they only had money for one camera. So what F.W. Murnau did is he basically, to use our modern terms, storyboarded out every moment of this movie. So he knew exactly what he wanted the camera to be doing, what he wanted it to capture. When F.W. Uh, Murnau was working with the actors, he gave them very specific instructions on how to move and where to go. And he timed the pace of their movements and acting with a metronome. Um, like, he got down to that sort of technical detail. And I think one of the chief reasons that Nosferatu, especially with being a silent film, is remembered today is because watching the movie, you can tell he took such care with every single frame that you see. And it's shot almost like a documentary in these locations that look like for us now, like in another age, almost like a fairy tale. And he created images that are truly unforgettable. And that really brings us to Max Schreck. Max Schreck is the actor who plays Count Orlok, who is obviously the Dracula character. One fascinating thing is that Max Schreck, his name, his last name Schreck, if you translate Schreck from German into English, the literal translation for Schreck is Fright. And that was his real name. You cannot make that up. He's just perfect um, in the part. I mean, when we think of Dracula being a really horrific figure, it is the silhouette of Max Schreck as Count Orlok and Nosferatu that we're really thinking of. There, those images of his, of his shadow going across the walls, the silhouette of him on the ship as he, you know, kills all the passengers on board. And the movie's really smart about how it reveals him. You know, he's first seen as the coachman, just as Dracula is the coachman in Bram Stoker's novel, and his coach is sort of, like, covered in these black curtains, and, like, he's in this, like, black hat and this black cloak that goes all the way down, almost like he's a part of this, like, death carriage. And then, when Jonathan, or Hutter, first sees, first sees him uh, emerging out of that darkness of the castle doorway into the light. It's just horrific with, with his long fingers and fingernails and those, and the eyes and the 
the nose and the ears and visible and visible fangs, visible pointed teeth. It's so unnerving. And then the first time at night when Hutter sees Count Orlock and you see him for the first time without that hat on and he's just bald, this white bald creature coming at you. And that seems terrifying because, like, there's nowhere for a hutter to go. He looks out the window and then he realizes there's nothing to do except lay in bed and wait for the Count to come feed on him. It's horrifying. And Max Schreck's work in this movie is truly, truly incredible unforgettable. Also really excellent in this film is Greta Schroeder, who plays Ellen Hutter, who is sort of the Mina, who is definitely the Mina figure in the film. She get, like she carries pretty much the second half of the movie on her shoulders, and she is so haunting and spooky, and she brings such a deep emotional sense into this horror story. It's really notable. And like I said, they're just images in this movie can't forget, like with Count Orlock or like Ellen when she's sleepwalking in her white nightgown, how she walks on her tiptoes and like lifts her arms, but not straight ahead like a stereotypical zombie thing. Like they're up above her head, there's something that she's reaching for, and you know it's the vampire. Um, and moments... Well, I should talk about the way we view Nosferatu, because Nosferatu is in the public domain. Uh, and like I said, it's a miracle it survived, because Florence Stoker, Bram Stoker's widow, after Nosferatu came out justifiably sued Prana Films for copyright infringement, and she justly won. Uh, but what was interesting about that verdict is that the judge, in addition to, you know, ordering Prana Films to pay Florence Stoker a lot of money for stealing Bram Stoker's work and being inspired by it, uh, they also ordered that every print of Nosferatu be destroyed. Thank God a few prints survived. Some, some accounts say there was only one single print of Nosferatu that survived that was copied over and over and over again. So a lot of the time when we look at Nosferatu today, you're looking at a grainy, really poor-looking black-and-white transfer of it, which has its own creepy charms. That's how I first saw Nosferatu um, was on a print like that. But the reality of it is that there is almost none of Nosferatu that is in pure black and white as it was originally intended to be seen. Uh, the original Nosferatu in its release often had the screen tinted different colors, uh, like sepia for day, 
blue for night, also sometimes green or red. There's always some color going on. And what made me think of that is because I think one of the really creepy images is on the journey that to Count Orlok's castle. You see the car suddenly the carriage is moving along and it's in this environment that is just black and white and so white that it's almost oversaturating the image, um, which is super creepy. Um, there is a version of Nosferatu uh, that is on YouTube because for all of these movies, I'm going to tell you where to watch them and give you the links to them so you can watch them along with me, I hope. Uh, but there's a great version on YouTube that is a gloriously restored print, like it is crystal clear, as clear as it can be, with the original coloring. Uh, but this particular version also has the original score of the movie. Because one of the little-known facts about Nosferatu is that it was one of the first two films ever made that had a musical score specifically written for it. And that was that score for Nosferatu was written by Hans Erdmann. And that score has been reconstituted. And this version on YouTube, you can watch a beautiful, pristine print of the movie with the original coloring. And you can hear it with the original score, which is really, really, really excellent. And I'm going to play a little bit of it for you while... I finished talking about this awesome movie. See, I'm not writing these out in advance. I'm just sort of doing my research and talking to you all. Uh, so it's not as tidy as going dark theater. But Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, is regarded as kind of the grandfather of modern horror films. For a reason, Roger Ebert, um, the late film critic, said something about this movie that I thought was very astute. And he said something to the effect of, you know, watching Nosferatu now, it doesn't scare us, but it does haunt us. And I think that is a very true statement. And I hope this movie haunts you, too. So, enjoy our first movie of October 1st, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, released in 1922 and directed by F.W. Murnau. And now you can pause this, watch the movie, and come back for the second feature of the night. So what we're listening to now in the background is the music for the opening credits for the second movie 
of our October 1st Nosferatu night, Nosferatu the Vampire, released in 1979 and directed by Werner Herzog. Uh, the German title is Nosferatu Phantom der Nacht, Nosferatu Phantom of the Night, uh, which is really the better title for this movie, just as the original Nosferatu's full title is Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. And I think these are the most terrifying opening credits ever filmed, really. Uh, because these opening credits, um, I also should say this song is, uh, called, uh, Bruder de Chatons by Populva, uh, who scored this movie. But what the images that you see during these opening credits are actually the mummies of Guanajuato uh, in Mexico. And these are naturally mummified human bodies of the victims of an 1833 cholera epidemic that are on public display. You can go see them. Um, maybe not right now, but, you know, in the aftertimes you can. And Warner Herzog did many a fucked up thing during the making of Nosferatu the Vampire. Uh, but one of the things he did is that he actually took all the mummies out of their display cases and he arranged them himself in a row ranging from, you know, mummies of children to mummies of you know, elderly people, and looking at the faces of the mummies in the opening credits of Nosferatu the Vampire, it is, I think, legitimately disturbing, because, you know, he pans down, and you see that some of them are still wearing their clothes, like some of the little children, or like little girls still in their bonnets and dresses and some of the adults are still wearing their shoes and some of the mummies are so well preserved that they still have their eyes that are looking out at you and some of them still have full sets of teeth it really is pure nightmare fuel um those images of these you know real naturally mummified human bodies alongside Popova's music, sort of this, like, aching Gregorian chant. And I always loved these opening credits because, to me, it, like, this is always what, like, Dracula's basement looked like, you know, of his castle, that it was just full of these desiccated human remains. Um... So it's an extremely powerful beginning to a very powerful movie. And honestly, if I had to pick one adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, how, albeit however indirect, that I thought was my favorite, I would pick um, this film, Nosferatu the Vampire, Nosferatu Phantom der Nacht, uh, from 1979, directed by Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, great, great director, um, he regarded 
F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu of 1922 as the greatest movie that German cinema had ever produced. And I haven't seen enough German cinema to back him up on that, but I'm, will I'm willing to go there with him. So he really wanted to do a remake, and on the exact date in 1979, when Bram Stoker's Dracula became public domain in Germany, uh, that's when Werner Herzog began making Nosferatu his version of this film. And... I didn't talk uh, about, in when I was talking about the original Nosferatu, about the element it introduces into the story, which makes it a profoundly different one from Stoker's, in that, A, Count Orlok, or Count Dracula, as he is in Herzog's version, he feeds on people and drinks their blood, but he does not make more vampires. In this version of the mythology, all the vampire can do is kill human beings. They cannot make more vampires. So it becomes this extremely lonely existence through the centuries of never being able to make or have another one like yourself, which I think is pretty powerful. Uh, the other thing that the original Nosferatu added to the Dracula mythos that uh, Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu really, um, I think, elevates is that the vampire also brings the Black Death with him, brings the plague with him. Um, you know, in the in the boxes of earth, the coffins that he takes to the bit to the big city, they're they're full of rats that are infected with the Black Death. And as soon as the ship lands on shore, they begin to bite human beings, and so the plague begins to spread. And as the vampire is killing people, the plague is also killing people. Which I think, you know, um, makes for a very rich story to be told. So, Werner Herzog, obviously a huge fan of the original Nosferatu, directed by F.W. Murnau, uh, stays faithful to the original, even recreates some shots from the original, but really also does a lot to push the world that we're now created into a different realm. Um, Klaus Kinski, like Max Schreck, is an extraordinary performance. And the thing that Klaus Kinski adds to this performance of Dracula that hadn't really been seen before is a sense of immense pain and loneliness and a longing for love for someone uh, to love him in, as the creature that he is. And uh, Werner Herzog, the director, and Klaus Kinski, the actor, did many films together and they had a extremely volatile relationship. Um, they even tried to kill each other at one point. Um, 
uh, Werner Herzog later made a documentary about his friendship with Klaus Kinski and their work together called My Best Fiend. Uh, so I think that says a lot. But apparently uh, during the uh, the filming of Nosferatu, uh, the vampire, Klaus Kinski was very, very invested in his role. Like the makeup that he was in took four hours to do and he never complained, uh, was always here for it. Uh, and he delivers truly, truly great work. And we're just going to pause for a moment and... I'm going to let you hear a little bit of Klaus Kinski's first scene with Bruno Ganz um, playing Count Dracula and Jonathan Harker to illustrate sort of that difference in characterization. I love the darkness and the shadows. Where I can be alone with my thoughts. I am the descendant of an old family. Time is an abyss. Profound as a thousand nights. So often, especially in the early scenes of Nosferatu the Vampire, Werner Herzog frames Klaus Kinski's Dracula as this just impossibly white head of a creature with these eyes filled with pain amidst a completely back, uh, black background that is extremely unsettling to watch. He really does incredible, incredible work. Also doing incredible work in this movie is Isabel Ajani, uh, who plays Amina, who is named Ellen in uh, the original Nosferatu. The first time we see her is when she sits up in bed and waking from a nightmare and she screams and her face just fills the screen. And she looks like Virginia Poe come to life, like whiter than white skin, black eyeliner around the eyes, raven black hair, these red lips. Her makeup is really the twin to Klaus Kinski's Dracula in many ways, which I think is a huge part of what this remake is trying to, t to do. Um, I really think the horror remakes that are worth a damn... I could count on one hand Nosferatu the Vampire in 1979 is one of them. And I think, especially watching it now, um, as, I, as I did to prepare for this, it really seems relevant to our present time. Because as the vampire takes hold, as the town is decimated by the plague, I think some of the most haunting, unforgettable scenes of this movie are later on when Isabella Gianni as Mina, or uh, actually Lucy in this movie, they call her Lucy, which I think is stupid. Um, all of, I'm never about the Mina erasure. She's my favorite character in the book. Um, but yeah, she's actually called Lucy and Nosferatu, the vampire. But she's walking through the town in the midst of the Black Death, 
And she's saying to people, I know what's causing this. I know what's causing this because she knows that Dracula's there. And the people in the town don't care. They're dancing in the streets. And there's one scene where she comes across this family eating, like, in the middle of a public square at this long, long dining table filled with food. And they say, won't you join us? It's our last meal. And then the camera cuts to that same table but the people are gone and the the table and the food where all the people were is now infested with the rats that are carrying the black death it really it really hits home uh in the present time in a lot of ways i think um how some people are just dancing in the face of death even though they know it will cause death I really think that Nosferatu the Vampire is a great piece of work. Um, one, one little fact about those rats. So, most of the scenes in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire were filmed in one uh, town in Germany. They unfortunately were not allowed to film in the same town that F.W. Murnau did during the original Dracula uh, so they filmed in a town that was nearby that had a lot of the similar feel, that sort of um, just buildings and houses that looked like they had been there for 300 years. And uh, Warner Herzog got kicked out of that town when he told them that he wanted to release 11,000 rats into the town. And the town that they had been filming in all this time said, hell no. Um, so, Warner Herzog found a town that was a little further away. A town that would let him release 11,000 real live rats into their town. Um, and so that's what he did. Uh, the only thing was Warner Herzog, want, they were white rats, and Warner Herzog wanted them painted gray uh, to make them, you know, look more sinister. Well, he painted the rats gray, and the rats licked the gray paint off of themselves, making them white. So when you watch this movie, in those scenes with the rats, you'll see some that are kind of gray, some that are white, and that's the reason why. Uh, like the best remakes of movies, Nosferatu the Vampire of 1979 has a slightly different ending than its predecessor. It's a darker ending. Um, really the only other instance on this scale I can think of is the uh, film version of Stephen King's The Mist. See, I'm cheating again. Uh, the Mist is not on my list of double features for this October, maybe next year. Uh, it's a great movie, but it has an ending that is so much darker than the original novella Stephen King wrote. And Stephen King said that he wished he'd thought of it himself. And the ending to Nosferatu, The Vampire, stays very faithful 
as it does throughout to F.W. Murnau's original film of 1922, but it takes it into slightly different, darker places and leaves you a little more unsettled than the original does. So, to watch Nosferatu the Vampire the easiest way, currently, as I'm recording this, is on YouTube. It is on YouTube free with some ads. And ads suck, no pun intended, we all know it, but that is currently as far as streaming, the easiest way to find Werner Herzog's 1979 remake, Nosferatu the Vampire. So that's what I recommend. Um, The ads are not that intrusive. I did watch it all the way through just to make sure. Um, But it's worth watching, and I hope you enjoy it. So now, go watch Nosferatu the Vampire and then come back, and we'll close our first night of 62 horror movies. Thank you all so much for joining me for the very first installment of 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me. Since we focused so much on vampires tonight, I'm feeling like a little bit of witchcraft for tomorrow. Join me tomorrow, October 2nd, for a double feature of Haxan, also known as Witchcraft Through the Ages from 1922, and for The Witch, a more modern folk tale from 2015. Happy Halloween!